Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Happy holidays. I like podcasts. I like podcasts because they're kind of just the opposite of everything else. They're just in-depth and longer and smarter. They're like the slow food movement, but for media. And I work in podcasts, but if I didn't work in podcasts, I would still be listening to podcasts. What am I saying? It's the holidays, and I'm trying to get you to introduce podcasting to your relatives and your relatives uh, to podcasting, because that's the thing is that they need somebody to do it for them. Please, when you are visiting with aunts, uncles, parents, Show them the way. Pick up their phone. Subscribe to some podcasts for them. Any podcasts. Will that be good for me? I don't know. Probably not. It will be good for podcasting as an industry, I suppose. You know what? It'll be good for your relatives. It's good for the world. When you do it, tweet that you did it, and I will send you and your relative a message of thanks, which will confuse them because they don't know anything about podcasts. Fatima Syed, investigative reporter for the National Observer. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Today we're going to talk about how the Toronto Sun is a total disgrace for publishing a racist lie about Muslim migrants. And we're going to talk about how the Toronto Sun is a total disgrace for publishing a misogynistic lie about a sex worker. Fun, hard topics. <laughs> Always fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> glad to have you here for it. Welcome. <laughs> this episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Danielle Windeker, Andrew Ritchie, Meredith Lister, Jessica White, Cameron Benz, Holly Kent, Julia Pert, and Dylan McKinnon. My name is Dylan McKinnon, and I'm an industrial designer from Toronto, now living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I support Canada Land because I value the journalism you do, and I think you're funny. This episode is also brought to everybody, once again, by Endy. Do you care about the nationality of your mattress? No. No. I mean, why would should you? Should I? Why? Should you? An interesting question. Yes, actually you should. I will tell you why. I know you care about the price of your mattress. I think I have to go home and now check the labels of my mattresses. You do not want to be unpatriotic in your mattress. No, you want to be a wise consumer. And what's really nice is that they avoid all kinds of fees and, and, and customs and money exchanges and shipping because it's because it's made here. So Conscious consumerism. I can get behind that. It's just thrifty, you know, just, you know, because you don't want to sacrifice on quality and Andy makes an excellent mattress. I happen to sleep on one every night, but they also are the least expensive of the we'll send you a mattress in the mail and you'll wonder how they got it into the box and you can try it out and if you don't like it, you can send it back. They're the most affordable one. Next time I need a mattress, that's where I'm going. Excellent. One more customer sold. <laughs> the rest of you, go to Andy.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand for $50 off of any Andy mattress. Thank you. 
Fatima, you're familiar with this debacle, uh, the Toronto Sun. Unfortunately, I am. <laughs> I think most people who listen to the show know this. I'm going to run it through it once again, uh, just to bring people up to speed. If they haven't heard of it before, Sue Ann Levy, I mean, there's a whole bunch of context. They've they fired, they've laid off all of their real reporters. And now, like, the entire paper is written by these columnist slash reporters, you know, which was kind of a progressive idea like 10, 20 years ago to have a columnist who also did original reporting and to kind of be honest with your reader about like, yeah, this story is told from a point of view. And now it's like this cost cutting measure where it's like, well, opinion's cheap. We have these kind of like older journalists who had been reporters and then they kind of got put out to, you know, you'll get the, the cushy job of writing columns, but now they're all that's left. And now they're writing the Toronto Sun, you know. Which is a sad state of affairs for Canadian journalism, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> This one, it just keeps going like, you know, new low after new low. So Sue Ann Levy was writing about this hotel in the greater Toronto area where uh, migrants are being housed. I would rather use the word refugees because I think that's what they were. They were refugees escaping a war and migrants suggest that they did have some sort of paperwork. These are people who escaped persecution, came here with nothing and are being helped or aided by the government, one hopes. So I think refugees is a better word to use in this context. I don't have a position on this. I know that these things get very technical. Is refugee status what they are hoping for and therefore calling them a refugee prematurely could confuse people further? I think so. I'm Again, I'm not an expert voice on this, but I just think when you say migrant, it, it suggests that there was an intention to move to Canada, whereas I think that the people that we're talking about in this story are people who were just looking to escape and they just ended up in a position where they could come to Canada. Asylum seekers? Asylum seekers is go. better. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, this stuff is, is loaded and there's like a high stakes as to what, you know, and, and different people read into these terms, different things. Well, I think that's why the story is important. It's because we're talking about a very precarious population and facts and the way we characterize them and the labels that we use and the definitions that we associate with them are very important in this context. Absolutely. Um, so I think... Just us even having this debate is a reflection of maybe a discussion that we would have thought that a paper like the Toronto Sun could have had. Oh, no, 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 no. This, <laughs> this, this column's from a different world. Where we're sitting here, just like, what is the most accurate and thoughtful? No, this is like a bulldozer, you know, Sue Ann Levy, without going there. She reads on TripAdvisor. And there's context there, too, because the fact of this hotel being a place where asylum seekers were living was itself becoming an incendiary bit of hate bait in right-wing circles. And so there was already an incentive to like rally the troops. And, you know, so what gets attacked is the TripAdvisor rankings of this hotel. Who knows if the people leaving these comments have ever been to Toronto. And somebody leaves a comment saying, oh yeah, they're slaughtering goats in the bathroom. And Sue Ann Levy not only repeats that lie, and she's acknowledged that that is not true. It's just not true. But she validates it by saying it comes from a reputable, a credible website. She's like, you know, TripAdvisor, you know you can trust that stuff. And does nothing else to verify this. And, and, and in fact, I think Ishmael Darrow went and did that legwork and went to the hotel and called, you know. So did Stephen Zhu for uh -huh. Vice. Right, right. And it, it just wasn't true. I think Sue Ann Levy said that she called the hotel and they, they, they didn't give her any answers. Okay, great, great legwork there. In any event, there's no question that this was wrong and lazy and hateful. I mean, I, I don't think you can kind of like overstate how hate, like it plays into a very vicious stereotype and characterization. I agree completely. And I think that the news council's statement was so jarring for that reason, because they called her out in 
no uncertain terms that, and I'm quoting because there's no better way to say this, neither did the writer describe any attempt to visit the hotel, verify the claim, or offer any caution about the failed efforts to do so. The News Media Council views this as a serious breach of journalistic standards for accuracy in reporting. And I think the entire, I think you called it a debacle, raises the question of column writing in Canadian journalism and how sort of how much freedom columnists have to write what they want without maybe verifying or doing the legwork. I remember Vicky Mochama doing a Twitter thread a couple months ago when she was teaching at Ryerson about column writing and, and sort of crowdsourcing advice. And one of the things that kept coming up is that just because you're a columnist doesn't mean that you don't do your reporting. You have to go and find the facts and then you sort of write a column based on those facts. And as the News Council decision shows that this was a, quote, unsubstantiated post from a crowdsourced platform, which they called as being the same as citing a rumor. And that's Mm -hmm. a quote from the statement. So I think there's so many questions that I have about why this was allowed to happen and and why why there's no accountability for it. Well, you know, you cut right to the chase. The reason why we're talking about this again is the National News Media Council's decision against Sue Ann Levy, which is a measure like that. That's there for accountability. Is it adequate? One big part of this that because I was so long winded in my summary, uh, we haven't mentioned yet is that following the publication of this column, there was a firebombing attempt at that hotel. And, you know, Sue Ann Levy is obviously not accepting the censure. She on Twitter has uh, basically sneered at this decision from this independent news media council. She said, oh, of course they did when we tweeted that they had had, uh, issued this. And in a follow-up column, she defended herself. She said, I not only did due diligence on the Radisson stories, but I've been advocating for the underdog, the homeless, social housing tenants, the socially isolated seniors and anyone else without a voice for most of my entire 30-year career. So she's up on a high horse. She is asserting that this has nothing to do with trying to smear the people who live in that hotel, the asylum seekers who live in that hotel, but that it was about the Trudeau government. It was uh, that, That's who the real target was, was why is the Trudeau government doing such a poor job with these cases? And you're not going to get accountability going to the author, which sometimes you can get. This is a person who like, you can't overstate it, like playing into this idea of goat slaughtering. It's like, I don't know if you're just like, oh yeah, the Jews were, were trading money and, you know, or like even worse, like they were making blood matzah. Like it really is that level. It's somewhere between those two things, you know, like you're really playing into the idea that this is like an uncivilized group of people who are just like behaving in this like unsanitary and un-Canadian, like it is just, it's the most virulent racism. And you're seeing the Toronto Sun play, like I consider them like, it's like a hate laundry, you know, cause you're taking like the worst hate that's on the internet that's swirling around the message boards and these little like missions that people go on. Let's go fill the the reviews of this hotel with these messages. And then you've got Sue Ann Levy like validating it, cleaning it up of like the actual epithets and putting it in a newspaper, you know? And then it plays a role in that same hate ecosystem where people look back, oh look, it was true because now it's in a newspaper. Like it's just against the public's interest in every way. Like it's a really targeted missive against a segment of the population. I still can't decide what's more jaw-droppingly mind-blowing, whether it's the sensationalist claim that refugees were slaughtering goats in a hotel, which, again, I don't understand why. Well, I, I understand why that idea exists, because we live in a sort of world which sort of perpetrates these kind of irrational ideas. But also the fact that, you know, Sue Ann Levy 
however you think about her, she is a reputable journalist in some shape, like as an identity. She's a journalist on Twitter, right? A public (laughs) name. But to think that someone like... (laughs) She's on Twitter. I'll give you that. (laughs) But by all accounts, an audience would perceive her as a journalist. And she's citing a single TripAdvisor post as a news source. Between the two things, the the sensationalist claim of slaughtering goats and the TripAdvisor post being used as the only source for a column, I just I don't know which one to take apart or which one to be more angry at. Well, yeah. I mean, you asked where's the accountability. And like, I guess that's where I want to take this conversation, because you can't go to her. She she won't have it. You can't go to Adrian Batra, the editor in chief, who won't talk about this stuff. She won't answer questions about the kind of stuff The Sun has been publishing. So you go to the National News Media Council. Maybe we could talk about the point of a press council like this in this day and age. It's interesting, you know, Chris Sully, who is an editor at the National Post, he is an opinionated guy who often has interesting opinions. And I have not seen him take issue with the Toronto Sun. I know that the serious journalists at the National Post are like their jaws are open wide just as anyone else's. Like, what the hell is going on at the Sun? So he's, you know, they're they're afraid to you know, that's their own paper. It's a post-media paper, The Sun. So they're not talking about that. What he did say about this, he said, well, why on earth would the Toronto Sun voluntarily submit its journalism to censure by an organization that considers it unacceptable to describe people who cross the border illegally as illegal migrants? Why would any news organization submit its journalism to outside censure? Now, that second question might be a good question. Why would any news organization submit its journalism to outside censure? I had an episode when they launched this National News Media Council with John Fraser, who's running the thing. And I said, what is this for, this council? Like, is this like a way for journalists to look accountable and to say, hey, if you've got a problem with me, we're a member of this independent council. You can go talk to them. We are accountable because we're a member. So, you know, that, that, that would seem to suggest that, that it has teeth. If you go to the National News Media Council and the National News Media Council says, yes, this was bad journalism. What happens? And what happens is the Sun has to issue like some kind of a published report that this happened. Is that enough? And then what? I'm just saying I'm two years out of journalism school, so maybe I'm not the most expert voice on this. But I remember a very poignant ethics class where where our professor, who was then the chair of the journalism school at Ryerson, Ivor Shapiro, in sort of big capital letters, the last lesson that he gave us was don't be a jerk. Uh If you're not a jerk, then you're bound to be accountable and ethical to the stuff that you're writing, you know? And that was just like, you know, every sort of complicated ethical argument that we had talked about condensed into four simple words. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. I don't understand, you know, Toronto Star has Kathy English, who's amazing at her job. She's a public editor. You know, Globe has a public editor. Why doesn't the Toronto Sun have a public editor? To start off with, because at least then you have someone that you can turn to as a reader and say, hey, this was wrong. Yeah. This was so wrong. And you need to do something about this. And you need to ensure that this doesn't happen again. If this had happened at the Toronto Star, I as a reader could go to Kathy English and say that and be confident that she would address it. But I don't have that confidence at the Sun because there's no one there. And the News Council doesn't seem to have any power based on what I've read on the website. So again, the question comes down to, okay, a journalist made a huge mistake, to put it kindly, and was very not factual in her article, uh, did not follow journalistic standards, did not follow journalistic ethics. What happens now? Do we penalize her? Do we sort of take her off her job? for? Do we spend her? Well, we, I don't... we don't do anything because we have no authority over <laughs> who, her. I mean, who does something? What happens now is she does it again because she's done it before. This is not the first National News Media Council decision against and, and her. And that's what creates a dangerous pattern where then you have the idea, like, you know, there's little things in the article, like the big things aside, there's little 
things like calling uh, these asylum seekers illegal, which is now everywhere. And no one is countering that because you're not illegal if you come to Canada and seek asylum. That is your right under all the sort of international accords. Now on Twitter, all I see when it comes to conversations about refugees and asylum seekers, I keep seeing that adjective illegal, which really bothers me because it is wrong. But no one's actually saying it. And attempts at sort of correcting that, like just yesterday, uh, the federal minister of immigration did like a fact checking thread about the global compact on migration, which he signed on Friday in Morocco. And Lisa McLeod, an MPP, sort of retweeted it and said, delete your account. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you have Andrew Shear on Twitter sort of talking about illegal border crossers. And that's now sort of a regular phrase used by conservative politicians. And now it's in every Toronto Sun article I read about these refugees as well. And so it just it's a snowball effect when we allow a columnist, a very high profile columnist in whatever paper to use a wrong term to describe a precarious population that is already fearing for their safety and fearing for their lives. It's going to have ripple effects. And if you look at the timeline, I know Bruce Arthur, he made a huge timeline about sort of how we went from the Suan Levy column to everything else that happened from the uh, the attempted arson attack to sort of the Faith Goldie participation in this and everything. There's a huge timeline. And I was reading that last night and I was like... That's the snowball effect. That's what happens when there's no accountability for a columnist who uses a term, who who describes the refugee population as slaughtering ghosts without having the facts in front of her. I mean, we're at such a lower level than like the illegal question. I, I don't think it's the proper term to use. There is a debate that obviously Criselli wants to have about how it's the proper term. And I think that there are... I don't want to give validity to an argument I disagree with. I don't think it's a proper term. There are people who will argue with you and try to get very, very granular about how it actually is. This is not anything that anyone can defend, right? Like we're, we're at a different level here and it's not the first time. The first decision against Sue Ann Levy was when she was uh, writing about how the Sikh population believes in this concept of a shaheed, a martyr, and like she's not Googling things. Like that, like forget about going and actually doing reporting. Like Six don't believe in martyrdom and heaven and hell. Like that, like that is just, uh, you'll get a better opinion from a drunk at a bar, you know? Like this is just, it's not even like thoroughly researched or well-crafted hateful propaganda. It's just offhand bullshit nonsense. So we but, can- But I think, again, I think going back to the question of accountability, I think there is no accountability for someone who spreads that quote bullshit nonsense quote. And there should be. There should be accountability for- any columnist who so what are we talking? <laughs> hate a level of hatred through inaccurate reporting. Like, that should be something that exists. Okay, we're at the crux of it now. And we're actually like, and I probably should apologize to our listeners outside of Ontario because both segments on today's episode of Shortcuts concern the Toronto Sun. It's just that they, it just keeps happening. So it's like when, when no accountability exists, you know— Comparing Andrea Horvath to Hitler, uh, the prior the one about six Shahids that was unresearched, this one where there's a firebombing following it. And then this next thing we're going to talk about later in the episode, it's the sun, the sun, the sun, the sun. There ought to be a law. There should be kind of accountability. There isn't. The National News Media Council, I guess that's something. You can cite it and say, okay, you know, the sun has said we are a member of this thing. We recognize their authority. They've issued this. You got it wrong. But like, you know, Susan Delacourt, like she tweeted at uh, Ann Levy at the decision and said, in my day, this would be a firing offense. Well, it's not that day anymore. And so, and Levy is not going to be fired. But like, what do you do when there is no accountability and when the Toronto Sun is about to start receiving millions of dollars of federal subsidies? Do you think that the age of social media has allowed like such sensationalist reporting to exist without accountability even more so? 
based on sort of, you know, the, the tweet that said that this was a firing offense back in the day. In a very convoluted way, yes. Like, because the son, like, you know, how do you trace this? The son's absolute abandonment of any standards has to do with the son's economic situation, which has to do with social media taking advertising money away from the industry. It also has to do with Sue Ann Levy being basically a legitimizing mouthpiece of an online horde. You know, she's like a, a node in a network. Like, like I said, the messages go through TripAdvisor, they find their way into a Sue Ann Levy column, then Faith Goldie tweets them, and then the correction nobody picks up on because that's not the information they want to hear. So yes, it's it's absolutely and, – and, and the reason why these columnists are so blithely, you know, arrogantly disdainful of any kind of accountability is because they know where their true power lies. Their true power lies – the more that, that it seems like institutionalized censure comes their way, the more that strengthens them on social media. So they're playing to that base. So yes, it has to do with social media. I think back to how many clicks that story got, like how many people actually read that story. And and I don't know if all those people were sort of followers of the ideas that she perpetrated in, in that article or whether they were people who were just curious to know what sort of information she put out on that day. Well, I mean, I'm clicking on that, you know, goat slaughter in a bathroom in a hotel. Like, I want to know what that story is. So, I mean, you know. If they weren't hateful when they got in the door, they might have been a little bit more so when they came out the other side. And I think that's the problem, right? I yeah. think that's the problem. Once you put that idea out, everyone wants to know more about it and everyone starts thinking it's real. It's a very fine line between fiction and, and reality now, I find, especially in the age of social media, because any wrong idea can quickly become truth because of the number that sort of retweet it or the number of people that share it and pass it on. You know, facts still fucking matter, but the scariest part is like, okay, we have put this through the process. It has been independently analyzed. Facts have reasserted themselves. The facts were wrong. The correction was issued. The censure was given. And you're, it doesn't you're matter. You're describing an ideal world now. No, it happened. <laughs> All those things happened. But it, but it didn't matter. That's true. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm gonna recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Fatima, do you have a duly noted for us today? I do have a duly noted. I figured it was close to the end of the year, so I could give you the top three things that I hope media covers better next year because I think that's a thing we should always aspire to do better. Um, you brought me a list. <laughs> I brought you a, a list. A year-end list. <laughs> a year-end list. It's very short. because No, I, <laughs> I appreciate the work that's gone into this. This is fantastic. Please. What um, is, uh... So the first one, to build on that excellent podcast you did on climate change just a couple of days ago with the discourses, Lauren Kelger. Um, 
National Observer, we have a mandate to cover climate change because we believe that it's the most pressing issue of our times. I've been doing that as an Ontario reporter and sort of, you know, trying to dig into it. But I think reporters everywhere can put climate change in any story. Were you yelling at me and yelling at the radio during that podcast? Honest. A, a little how, bit. How a little bit. I was rolling my eyes just a little bit. I was right. the rolling eyes emo- emoji. We might need a bit more. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but I think we need more of that. I think we need more rolling eye emojis and more like, you know, Elmo on fire emojis because climate change is an important issue and as Canadian industry we are not Canadian journalism industry we are not covering it well at all I don't think we wrote enough about COP24 and our participation in that it was sort of the biggest international discussion about where we need to go next with the Paris targets and how we really need to hone down and what we need to do and I think you know our Ottawa reporter Carmeier actually interviewed the federal minister of climate change um, while she was was in Poland to talk about this. I don't see many other outlets doing that. We got to stay on top of that issue and cover it because the consequences of that could really hurt us, uh, to put it very simply. Number two is um, what we were just talking about, immigration. I think we need to get away from the he said, she said. We need to get away from the binary discussion of, you know, one person calling them illegal, the other person saying they're not illegal. I think we need to go into the gray area and look at the nuance. We need to go to the population, do our due diligence. We need to work hard, you know, build some trust between reporters and refugees and asylum seekers and tell their stories because only when we do that will we actually understand that population and understand sort of the challenges they're facing in their move to Canada. And number three is Ontario specific. We've lost three major watchdogs that I know I've been writing about. The environmental watchdog, the child advocacy watchdog, and the French language commissioner. We've also lost our prison reformer. Um, you know, we've lost funding to the College of Midwives that oversees midwife practice that National Observer wrote about. There's so much happening in Ontario. And as reporters, we got to take a step back and really look at the big picture and understand the impact of what all of this will do to Ontario society and what consequences it can have so that we can hold governments accountable. So, those are my top three things that I hope media will cover better in 2019. Duly noted, duly noted, and duly noted. I also have three things. Let's do it. All right. Very quickly, three things. Okay, it has been revealed uh, that Facebook gave the Royal Bank of Canada the ability to read, edit, or delete your personal Facebook messages. Yeah, that blew my mind. Royal Bank of Canada says they did. We didn't know that, but uh, they had that ability. Number two. Some months ago, uh, I told listeners that the uh, newspaper lobby group, the Canadian News Media Association, actually got a grant from Heritage while they were lobbying Heritage. They used to be called the newspaper lobby group. They rebranded themselves the News Media Association, so it didn't seem like a newspaper bailout. And while they were lobbying Heritage, that was the ministry that they wanted the bailout from, Heritage was giving them money for their lobbying efforts. So we knew that months ago, Blacklock's reporter actually pulled an ATIP of the documents and they actually have the, the sum. It's $385,000 that they got from Heritage, kind of secretly. This wasn't announced anywhere. And what they did with that money was lobby the public. They did this insipid campaign. You've seen these like journalism now more than ever, newspapers, good for you. Trying to convince the public that, you know, of, of just the, the severity and importance and then just getting like celebrities like one of the Queer Eye guys to like hold a newspaper and take like a social media pic of himself holding a newspaper. And I bring this up again, not just because we have like, you know, total confirmation that this happened as we originally told you it did, but 
Also because I think that it buttresses my feeling that this entire newspaper bailout thing and the consultation that led to it was a fixed deal from the start. Why would Heritage be giving money to the lobby group to prepare the public who hates this idea? The public does not, 80% of the public does not want a newspaper bailout. So they're going to hammer us over the head with this expensive campaign that newspapers are very serious to prepare us mentally to swallow this almost $600 million package. And finally, you know, We've been talking about Canada's sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia for years now, and I never had any uh, delusions that our coverage or that any journalist's coverage necessarily could, would stop Canada from this hypocrisy of selling uh, these uh, armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia, which are used to kill people. We originally published a piece by Michael Lista um, about how the, the Griffin Poetry Prize, Griffin was also an investor into this, this arms deal. And, you know, I, I was very surprised when he actually severed that investment after that reporting. And I felt like maybe that was the extent of our influence. And I'm not just, you know, forget us, Stephen Chase, who's been doing the real work for the Globe and Mail on pointing out that these are not just Jeeps. These are actual weapons. They are being used. They are killing people. I never thought that journalism would work, you know, necessarily. You know, you hope that it would. I'm duly noting as my third point today that if the question is, what does a journalist have to do to get this government to take a principled stand on selling weapons of war to Saudi Arabia, we finally have an answer to that question. Get dismembered with a bone saw. If you do that, Justin Trudeau will consider breaking this arms deal, which he has announced uh, in the wake of the Khashoggi assassination and mutilation that finally Canada is looking to get out of this deal. Duly noted. Okay, as promised, uh, another Toronto Sun story. Not just a Toronto Sun story, but first a Toronto Sun story. A Toronto Sun cover story. It's always embarrassing when you get your facts wrong right on a cover. And it's especially embarrassing when you go just like bottom of the barrel, like salacious, disgusting, just, just you know, the most prurient story possible. And you get your facts wrong. The cover of the Toronto Sun in big bold type, but do they ever have any other? Legal nymph. Law student faces good character hearing over double life. And that's not true. <laughs> they, got, they got it wrong right off the bat. Nadia Guo is a law student who is currently embroiled in a good character hearing with the Law Society, uh, whether or not she's going to get licensed as a lawyer or not, has to do with uh, her character and uh, complaints about her character. But they have nothing to do whatsoever with the fact that she is a sex worker. So right off the bat, they got that wrong. It is not illegal to be a sex worker in Canada. No one complained about the fact that she's a sex worker. So you can't fault the reporter Sam Pisano for what's on the cover. That's probably not his choice. Um, somebody else makes those decisions. I could see where they got the idea that those two things were linked, though, because Pisano linked them in his reporting. Pisano was writing about Guo's character uh, troubles and for no reason whatsoever wrote about the fact that she's also a sex worker and outed her identity, published her sex worker name, which is Don Lee. Our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, reported on this and has been in touch with Guo and got her permission to uh, repeat that outing. I mean, now that it's out there, uh, I think that she is uh, understands that that's done and is happy to have this aspect of it covered as well. So she's given us permission to name both of those names. For the aspiring journalists out there, Fatima, why, why do we not out sex workers in the media? Because they're also precarious. They're a precarious population. And, and they're... 
dangers to their workplace that they do not want to face. Uh, they can I get th- killed. That's why. That too. <laughs> right? No, no, it's what you're saying. I mean, just to put a finer point on it, like they, they use fake names for a reason and it's not just to be titillating. They use fake names because you're, you don't know who you're dealing with and they, that person might form some obsession, become a stalker, uh, bother you, bother you at home. It's not just that they're trying to become lawyers and don't want the things connected, though that might be part of it. it it's a safety issue. It's a huge safety issue. And I think it's, not to link the two things, it, it comes back to our accountability question. Like, you know, outing a sex worker, saying the refugee slaughter goats, they're they're both on the same level of bad. <laughs> they're really bad. They're why people hate us. It's why people hate reporters and shit like this. I just hate the hypocrisy of it, you know? And both both Pisano and Rosie DeMano of the Toronto Star, who wrote a pretty identical column, they both say it had nothing to do. I'll read here. It wasn't her night or weekend job, which consisted of realizing people's wildest sexual fantasies as a self-described bedroom nymph that jeopardized her chance at a legal career. No one complained about her escort job. I think she put it better in another line. She said, none of the aforementioned conduct has a damn thing to do with it. And that's the hypocrisy. The, first, the one that I was reading, I think, was from the Pisano piece. You just read from the Demano piece. Yeah. Demano likes to play like she's actually an advocate of sex workers, right? You know, she's since written like, oh, it's just part of the story. It's just another story to me. Why wouldn't I use that? It's nothing special to me. And I've been advocating for people like this. I got, I have no moral problem. You can't, I mean, there's a hypocrisy in the fact that you're trying to titillate your reader with all these um, details from Don Lee's, you know, Don Lee is a sex worker who's very prolific on social media and has all kinds of erotic writings and stuff that you could pull from her sex worker persona. And obviously the reporters were very happy to use that stuff, though it had nothing to do with this uh, tribunal before the law society. That's what I don't get. What public interest is served by examining this woman's private life? Well, the public might be interested, but of course that is a separate thing from the public interest. I mean, none, you know, there's no, we don't have any right or reason to know that. I mean, there is a maximalist ethic among some reporters, which is just like, I want the reader to know everything that I know. Her sex work, she had a Twitter account and a website, so that was public. A law society proceeding, that's public. It's all public. The fact that that her, um, a lot of people knew that it was the same person, that's public. I'm here to just give people as much information as possible. You can maybe use that, but then that doesn't help you with the error on the front of the sun. And I really think that like, it doesn't help Rosie DeMano with her hypocrisy that she's some sort of advocate when you're actually endangering a specific human being. I think that there's a generational difference between sort of calmness like Rosie DeBano and, uh, you know, emerging columnists. I think based on what I read, her two columns, it seems like she is writing because she genuinely thinks that, you know, a lawyer who is also a sex worker is just wrong. And that's what she's trying to convey in a very maybe unethical if that's the right word, or just in a way that doesn't satisfy journalistic standards in a modern society. I heard the term horophobic used. You know, I mean, it's like having your cake and eating it too, which is, I guess, a classic thing of like, you know, let's judge this person. What did they do? What did they do? And then to say, oh, I'm not judging her. I don't know. Like, you know, Damano uh, told... Well, well, that's the other thing. She's not a lawyer, right? This woman is not a lawyer. She's an articling student who is undergoing a disciplinary process. So she's already facing a lot of things. So I don't understand the need to write everything about her personal life when she's already in a precarious situation. Oh, this ticks off all the boxes. Um, You know, I think Damano also mentioned that she has Chinese parents, that she's Canadian-born, but her parents are of Chinese origin. I know it's a small detail, but that really bothered me. I think the exact phrase was Canadian-born daughter of Chinese parents. Yeah. I don't know what was being conveyed by that. Oh, she's just like uh, using a hacky stereotype of like, oh, traditional parents. Like, oh, um, I bet they're really proud. Huh? Like, you know, it's not hard to read the inferences in this stuff. I mean, it's just like trotting out like cliche after cliche. 
I don't know. But it's like, again, like, I want to know if there was a discussion between editor and reporter or editor and columnist about, you know, should we out this woman who's a sex worker or what are the ethics here? Did you talk to her? Did you get permission from her? Why are we describing her? Is it necessary to describe her as a daughter of Chinese parents? I don't think there are enough discussions happening. And I don't know why that bothers me more than it bothers the actual columnists who are writing this stuff. I think the Occam's razor of this is just there's just less resource than ever, and these people are lazier than they've ever been. Like, like I think that this is really lazy writing. It's it's lazy use of tropes and cliches. It's not reporting. It's not bothering to pick up the phone and find out more. It's, At the very least, it's dangerous because it's setting, again, it comes back to the snowball effect. It's, it's setting a trend, uh, a very dangerous trend of, you know, what other reporters could write when it comes to the issue of sex workers. I don't know. I mean, maybe DeMano feels like she like almost defiantly uh, also called her a hooker. You you will find the best practices for writing about sex work, you know, guide online. And I, I have to imagine that Rosie DeMano knows and like is, you know, thumbing her nose at such political correct nonsense when she, you know, calls a spade a spade. I mean, you're, you know, you're getting these people's political, you know, this is this is a backlash. I suppose they see it against the way things are turning and they're just going to tell it like it is. But I don't know. People get ground down in the gears of these things. I think like in the face of these columns, I think like for me, at least it's important to go and find good sources of reporting when it comes to the issue of sex workers. And I have to give a shout out to Vice, who's done incredible work on this. And I watched one of their documentaries a couple of days ago, actually. It was called The Home Lives of Sex Workers. And there's this really poignant line in it that says, once you show your face, there's no going back. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that just captures the entire problem with both the Sun and the Star articles about this articling student because they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't do it properly. And they put a a young woman who's not even in sort of the peak of her professional career in even more precarious situation than she probably wanted to be. I think when your reporting is so misleading that you've successfully misled your editor who writes the headline on the cover of your own newspaper... You're leading people to bad conclusions. Yeah, that headline was something, huh? That is your Canada Land Shortcuts, Toronto Sun Edition. Thank you, Fatima. Thank you, Jesse. Okay, you can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Fatima B. Syed. They can also email me. My email is on the National Observer website, and that's where you'll find all my articles and features as well. And Syed is S-Y-E-D. That's right. <laughs> Our website is at canadalandshow.com. All of our podcasts and news stories can be found there and Jonathan Goldsby's reporting about the Toronto Sun and the story that we were talking about today. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. There is a new episode of Oppo up this week. Check it out. It is a lot of fun. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to get ad-free versions of our podcasts, support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.